Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Therapy Chat Podcast, Episode 262. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and today we are going to hear an interview with Nancy Jane Smith. Nancy has a master's degree in higher education and in community counseling from the University of Dayton, and she's a licensed professional counselor with 11 years in private practice who has worked 20 plus years as a counselor and coach. Nancy Jane has written three books on living happier, most recently, The Happier Approach, Be Kind to Yourself, Feel Happier, and Still Accomplish Your Goals. She's a Daring Way facilitator like me, and she also is the host of the Happier Approach podcast. Our subject today is high-functioning anxiety. I thought this was a really interesting conversation, and I love how Nancy uses a parts approach to her work. That resonates a lot for me, and I think that what she talks about in our interview is resonant for many of us, how we manage our anxiety when we're really high-functioning with through achievement. So, I think you're going to really enjoy this. Let's dive right in. Before we do get started, I just wanted to remind you that my trauma therapist consult groups will be reopening for registration on February 1st. And so shortly after you hear this, registration will be open and groups start mid-February 2021. So if you're interested in joining a community of supportive colleagues who are full of compassion and ideas and passion for their work and you want to improve your skills in working with trauma survivors with bottom-up neuroscience-based techniques, join us. You can get more information at the link in the show notes for where you can sign up to be one of the first to be notified when registration is open. Also listen here because next week I'll have the registration link for you if you want to just wait for that. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and today I am very excited to be bringing you a conversation with a fascinating guest. My guest today is Nancy Jane Smith. Nancy, thanks for being my guest on Therapy Chat today. 
Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited about this conversation. Me too. I can't wait to talk to you because the subject of high functioning anxiety is something that I see in my practice all the time. And I know you have a new book about the subject and a podcast that's been out for a while. So I can't wait to hear all about it. But before we even start, let's just give you a chance to tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your work. Okay. I'm a licensed professional counselor based out of Columbus, Ohio. I've been doing this work since 2007. And I, my dad died a few years ago. And that's what really inspired me to get involved in the work of the inner critic, because I realized he had been haunted his entire life by his inner critic. And even the day he died, still thought he was an imposter. And so after his death, part of how I dealt with my grief was writing the book called The Happier Approach, which really explores this idea of the inner critic. And from that, in doing that book tour for that book, I realized that everyone has an inner critic, but some people have this inner critic who just rules their life in everything they do and is the judge and jury all in every action they take. And, and I figured out that those people tend to have high functioning anxiety. And I realized that that was something I was struggling with as well, was not traditional anxiety in its traditional sense, but more of this high functioning, pushing, pushing, pushing to deal with the anxiety. And so I started specializing in that vein. And it's just been fascinating working with clients that are dealing with this imposter complex times 50,000. <laughs> Yeah, that's I mean, you really got my attention there when you said that about your dad, because I mean, we always think about and I'm so sorry for your loss of your dad, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. We always think about how I think maybe it's a fantasy, but I'm telling myself that at the end of life, people gain this wisdom and they suddenly forget about all the little stuff that didn't matter. And they just, you know, they have compassion for themselves and everyone else. I mean, I don't know how that would just suddenly happen right <laughs> at the end, but that was the fantasy I had in my mind. So when you said that about him, even in his last days to be saying, you know, that he felt like an imposter, that's, that's sad that he had to feel that way and never got relief from it for his whole lifetime. So I think it's beautiful that you've taken that the grief that you had about losing your dad and and turn this into something that can help so many of us because it's it seems like it's an American problem. Oh, definitely. Yes. Yes. So let's talk first just by let's talk a little bit about what really this high functioning anxiety is that you've noticed in your clients. What does it look like? How do people feel? Well, high functioning, I determine say high functioning anxiety is the idea that instead you have these anxious feelings and instead of running away from them, you run toward them. So you become more motivated, more pushing, more, more, more. And the idea is if I can accomplish more, get more done, I will feel better and the anxiety will go away. And so the, the anxiety inside is kind of this drive towards achievement and, and figuring out how to be better. And so there are some signs of this. One of, you know, some of the factors that a lot of my clients have in common is a very rigid way of thinking. There's a, there's a right and a wrong and they can, they live their lives in this really tight kind of rocking this tightrope of, of the right way to do it and the wrong way to do it. So they have a lot of rules. They have a lot of rigidities that will keep them safe and, and accomplishing. And so they tend to live their lives in that black and white zone is one of the 
common traits I see. They're usually super perfectionistic, again, back to that right way and wrong way, trying to get it better. And on the outside, they look very together. Everyone sees them as having it all, having it all. And on the inside, they are constantly fighting this doubt and insecurity and anxiety of I'm never going to be enough. I'm never going to be enough. And it's kind of like this bottomless pit that, you know, what they're striving for is to is to ease that feeling inside, but it's never going to be filled by more and more accomplishment. Okay, so it's like they're striving to achieve and they're moving towards a goal. And every time they're getting, you know, reaching each goal, they're just setting another goal further down the line and thinking that they'll be okay when that happens, but they don't ever get that satisfaction. Right. Yes. There's this constant need for validation and for someone on the outside to tell me I'm okay. And then when that, and the belief is when I get that, when I get that reassurance, I'll be okay. But it's endless. It never, it never is enough. It never is enough. Yeah. So how does, this isn't something that is in the DSM, right? Correct. No, it is not. No. So how would someone who has this type of anxiety recognize that they have it? Because, you know, our culture really just rewards performance and achievement. And we, we get messages from very young ages that we are what we do. And that's what makes us of value. Yeah. So some of the the symptoms, quote unquote, I would see for I see for clients is a is a high level of perfectionism, a a tendency to overthink. So constantly thinking I need to make the right decision or or over preparing for a meeting, reanalyzing an event after it's happened to kind of pick it apart and see if they could have improved or where they could have done better. And then there's frequently my clients have insomnia. So they'll wake up in the middle of the night and be over doing that overthinking a reliance on numbing, so over drinking, overeating to numb out the anxiety. And so they will push, push, push all day, and then they just collapse on the weekends and in the evenings. There's also a sense of irritability. They can easily go, I call it a 10 reaction to a two situation. They can easily become irritable because they just have a low capacity for stressors because their plate is already overflowing. And so that irritability steps in and, and people pleasing is a big one. Again, they want that reassurance. They want that, that approval. And so they'll do people pleasing. And one of the way reasons I got so interested in this is a lot of my clients were coming to me because they were trying to get They had tried in the past to get treatment for these individual problems, procrastinating, people pleasing, perfectionism. And every time they they got treatment for that particular symptom, their anxiety would go up. And so they'd go right back to the to the methodology of decreasing their anxiety. And they were never healing the actual anxiety piece. They were always healing the 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 methodologies they had found that helped their anxiety, but are, you know, also considered negatives. That makes sense. I can see a person going to therapy and saying, I don't have like a mental health issue, like anxiety or depression. And of course, you know, no one wants to identify as having anxiety or depression. We always want to, you know, tell ourselves that's not what's going on, you know, but then, (laughs) right. (laughs) But you have these behaviors that are problematic and you realize they're problematic. Even I think people pleasing is something that sometimes at work, someone will call you out on and it feels so shameful to Mm -hmm. realize that. 
But then when you take away that coping strategy of people pleasing, because, you know, that's what they go to get help for. Of course, the anxiety that's causing the people pleasing behavior isn't being soothed by the people pleasing. So, you know, the person needs they're confronted with the anxiety. And then they it sounds like you're saying they just go back into this loop of returning to the same coping strategy. Right. Because they wouldn't identify. I mean, this is even something I dealt with that I never would identify myself as having anxiety because I didn't have, I wasn't in the stereotypical ways. I wasn't afraid. I didn't dread going to things. I, you know, because I had no awareness Mm -hmm. really of myself. I was just constantly performing for how other people wanted me to look. So, and didn't really recognize that what I was fighting was this feeling of anxiety. Yeah. Well, I guess let's talk about that. Like how, what do people normally think anxiety looks like? I think they go to the extreme of I'm hiding out in my bedroom and I don't leave and I, and I'm super worried about doing stuff or I have a fear of, um, spiders or snakes or whatever, like this idea that it's going to, the anxiety is going to overwhelm me and I won't move forward with my life and that they heavily worry and those sort of things. And that isn't the, the experience of my clients. It is more of an internal, an internal angst, an internal stressing that is more of a ruminating around, I'm not enough, I'm not enough, I'm not enough. Yeah, yeah. So it's like people are thinking, I'm not having panic attacks. I'm not staying up, unable to fall asleep because I'm worried about something. But instead, they're having these thoughts of like, I'm just a terrible person or I'm a failure or things like that. Am I on the right track? You are on the right track. Yes. Yeah. I I can relate to this too for myself. So (laughs) that makes it easier. (laughs) I'm like, oh, okay. I know what you're talking about here. (laughs) I think also what, what I notice a lot, because I certainly see this in a lot of my clients as well, which is one of the reasons why I was so interested to talk to you. There's a disconnect from emotion. So it's, it's not like I feel sad. I feel scared. I feel discouraged. It's, it's like thoughts and the the thoughts are negative thoughts about themselves. And if I just push myself harder, I'll be okay. Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I think something I read in one of the things that you had written too, because you've written a lot about this, even aside from your book is um, I should be happy. Yes. Yeah. That's the goal. I mean, that's the ultimate goal on all the achieving on all of the stuff. And it's only, that's the only emotion that is allowed is happy. And so all the other emotions are discounted immediately because I should be happy. That's the bottom line. And so everything else, and I should be grateful and what, what's happening and I shouldn't, this shouldn't be a problem. I should be okay. And that constant mantra is exhausting. Absolutely. So your book is called The Happier Approach. So I'm kind of curious about that, that um, I would think on the surface that the book is like, you're not happy and you want to be happy. You think you should be happy. So here's how to be happy. But um, it might not be the path that people are expecting. Yes. (laughs) Like work harder. Exactly. (laughs) 
It is kind of, you know, and I, I always laugh because I want to be able to, to, to figure out here's the, here's the steps, A, B, C, D, E, on how you can get to the place where you're not being driven by external things that you're only being, you know, that you're, you're moving from an external locus of control to an internal locus of control. And, and I don't know what that step is, but I do know yet, I'm still trying to figure it out, <laughs> still my quest, because I, you know, I still have that high functioning anxiety that I'm going to figure this out. And it is, but it is the idea of, of recognizing that it's all just messy. We're all just messy. And the more I can acknowledge what's really going on, and the more I can really face myself and stop the veneer of who I think I should be, and really look at myself and, and, and be kind to those messy parts, I will be naturally happier because it won't matter so much. I'll just be able to flow through life easier and not in the definition of happy where I have a plastic smile on my face all the time, but more of a definition of content and able to ride the waves of the of the emotions that come our way and the stuff that comes our way in our lives. Yeah, I, I like that. It's kind of like a shift in perspective from expecting that life is supposed to be all fun and or you work really, 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 really hard. And then if you do that, nothing will go wrong. I think that was what I thought. It's like, okay, maybe these past experiences that I wish never happened and I hate them and I don't want to think about them anymore. So if I just work really hard and be really, really good, then the rest of my life should be easy. It's supposed to be easy yes. if you just work hard. You know, it's like that Puritan work ethic that our yeah. earliest people who came to this country instilled. Yes, exactly. So can you talk a little bit about what are some of the the concepts that are in your book that will help people change this? Yes. So I always had the work. I always helped for a long time. I helped clients with inner critic and I call the inner critic a monger because a monger spreads propaganda. And that is basically what our inner critic is doing. She's spreading propaganda on on how we should behave. And she she um, and so she's there all day long, kind of chiming in our ear, telling us what we did wrong and how we did it wrong and how we should be doing it better. And, you know, that constant commentary. Everyone's very familiar with that voice. Mm -hmm. And the common wisdom was is, you know, well, you just need to accept yourself no matter what. You just need to, you know, have self-compassion and be kind to yourself and and accept yourself. And I was like, what does that mean? How how am I supposed to accept myself when my whole life I've been told you got to do better. 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 And I realized, and it was actually a friend of mine. I did a presentation on mongers and a friend of mine came up and she said, that was great. This is well before I'd written the book. I was just doing the standard inner critic presentation. And she said, that was great. I loved it. I am, I am never getting rid of my monger because if I didn't have her, I would do nothing all day long. Like she totally is the motivation for my life. And that was such an aha to me because when I got home, I was like, oh, you're right. That's how I feel, too. Like I was teaching all this stuff about the monger, mm. but I was still being haunted by her and she was still controlling everything because I had this secret love affair with her. I hated how she talked to me, but I loved that she motivated me. And so when I heard the, the other side of the coin, be kind to yourself, give yourself compassion, I went to the completely other side, which was 
do nothing, drink as much as you want to eat as much as you want to, you know, kind of live that hedonistic lifestyle. And so I would jump between the monger and the BFF all the time. The BFF is the name of that. That's what I call that character. And I named her the BFF because like when you're in high school and you have that BFF, you get into trouble and, but they always have your back. They, they will always do whatever you want them to do. I, I have a friend of mine who is like a BFF and we would go out for, you know, we'd skip our workout to go to happy hour to drink the beer and have the giant chocolate cake with the mozzarella sticks. Like that was our favorite way. I to let have off done steam. that too. <laughs> and so that is, gets exhausting jumping back and forth between these two voices, the monger telling you, you suck the BFFs, BFF saying, everything's fine. Forget about it. Let's go have another drink. And so in the book, I talk about these two characters and then I talk about the third character who is, I named her the biggest fan. And the biggest fan has the motivation of the monger and the kindness of the BFF. And so she's going to jump in and say, hey, I know you, you know, I know you don't want to do this today, but if we don't rake the leaves today, they're going to be majorly piled up next week. So let's just go out and do 30 minutes of raking and then then we can be okay. Then we can celebrate or whatever. But she isn't like, you're a loser. Look at those leaves. I can't believe you're not going to rake them. What are you thinking? And she's not the opposite of forget about it. It's your day off. You shouldn't have to rake. Let's go watch some Netflix. She is a, the voice of kindness and wisdom. Hey, everyone. It's Laura interrupting today's episode to share a listener message that was sent in response to the feedback I shared in episode 254. If you remember, in 253, I interviewed Tina Gilbertson, who talks about parental estrangement. And she specializes in helping parents who are involuntarily estranged from their adult children. I enjoyed my conversation with Tina a lot, and I felt that it was a fresh perspective because I often work with the adult children who may be estranged from their parents or may have strained relationships, even if they're not officially estranged. But in episode 254, I shared some feedback I received about how there's not enough emphasis on the impact of childhood abuse on children who are now adults and that, you know, parents are given more of a pass for their abusive behavior and being encouraged. Uh, the adult children are encouraged to just forgive and forget, which I certainly don't subscribe to that belief myself. And I don't think Tina does either. But, you know, that was a valuable point that that listener shared. And so in response to that, another listener, Andy, sent this message. Andy shared a perspective that I thought was also valuable to consider that, you know, it's very true that childhood abuse is extremely traumatic and there are other types of traumatic childhoods, oftentimes where there are attachment wounds that aren't healed that it's very impactful and it could be difficult for us to even identify that the way we feel is related to our childhoods. So that's why I really got what Eric was sharing when he commented that about Tina's interview, because I think that, you know, it's very common for people to blame themselves and not acknowledge the trauma that they experienced that really was no fault of their own, whether parents should have been safe and should have taken care of them. 
and not abused them or neglected them physically or emotionally. So, you know, both points are valuable, which is why I'm sharing them with you here. But what Andy pointed out is that there are different types of justice. There's transformative justice and there's retributive justice. When I hear retributive justice, I think of retribution. Andy generously shared some resources for anyone who would like to learn more about transformative versus retributive justice. And I'm including a link to what Andy was so kind to share with me in the show notes. So I hope that that will be interesting for you if you are seeking to understand more about these different types of of justice. So here's what Andy had to say. Hey, Laura, I just finished listening to episodes 253 and 254, and I was a bit taken aback by the reaction to a discussion that prioritized the narrative of estranged parents. I think that a lot of attention is typically given to an estranged child since we understand the victimization of being unwillingly estranged from one's parents, but we can't usually see the big picture or understand the pain and experience that creates these wounds in the parent or family. And we really readily place the estranged child into a victim role and are quick to demonize narcissist or toxic parent who is often a victim themselves. And to me, this is iterative of the difference between transformative and retributive justice. Our conditioning is steeped in retribution, which ultimately demands an absolution that will never come. And it's a regressive kind of demand for historical needs to be met by a parent who could not perhaps still cannot meet those needs in a way a child can feel. And it's often punitive in its delivery. But transformation invites us into an arduous process of grief and healing that holds space for anger and hurt felt by a parent and a child, which I think is aligned with Tina's ideology and aim to interrupt these intergenerational patterns of trauma. So I appreciated it, basically, is what I'm saying. Just a reminder, I welcome you to call in with your messages on SpeakPipe. All you have to do is go to therapychatpodcast.com and there's a button that says click here to leave a message on SpeakPipe. If you click on that, you can just record a message to me in your voice. I love hearing your voices. It's so cool to hear that there are people listening who are individual people. And I love hearing that. And I think other listeners like to hear your voices too. So that's why I enjoy sharing the messages I receive. I don't share all of them and I don't always respond quickly, but you know, I love this way of interacting. So you're welcome to do the same. And I might use your message on a, on a future episode. Thanks so much as always. All right. Now back to our interview with Nancy Jane Smith. Wow. So yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about what you're saying. And I'm thinking about how, I mean, for myself, I have this tendency to like work really, 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 really hard. And then because I feel exhausted, and I need rest, I allow myself to rest. But then I'm like, it's not that I'm not doing anything, but it feels like unbalanced, you know? Yes. Yeah. And I think it's been like a lot for a long time. I've been kind of on a quest to figure out how to just not have to drive myself so hard when I am working. And, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with allowing yourself to rest and relax and recover. I think it's important, but you know, it shouldn't have to be the two extremes. Right. Yes. Yeah. So how do people cultivate this biggest fan? So I have, um, (laughs) 
I have a three-part system, which always drives me crazy, That I that because it's not that easy. But, you know, you write a book, you get a system. Here we go. Um, <laughs> Got to start somewhere. <laughs> exactly. And so in doing research and, and, you know, in my work with clients and just my own work, I, I came up with this three-part system. And the first part is, as you said, because we are totally disconnected from our emotions. So the first part is acknowledging your feelings. And, you know, I always joke that I think I became a therapist so I could I could figure out why and I would never have to deal with any feelings like I could just analyze myself to death. And and I think that's a that's another common trait of people with high functioning anxiety. They are very self-aware in the sense of they can explain away anything, but they haven't done any, they don't get into their bodies. They don't acknowledge what's really going on. And so acknowledging your feelings is just the idea. And I give all my clients a feelings sheet. And when they notice that monger chiming in there to be able to name, what are all the feelings I'm feeling right now? And, and I encourage clients to name eight to 10 feelings because a lot of times it takes us a while to get to what's really going on. And it isn't about, oh, and then I need to go cry or hit a pillow or express that feeling. I just want people to start acknowledging that they have a lot of feelings going on down there and and not having to analyze each one of them away or figure out where it's coming from. But just to recognize there's a feeling, ha, huh, I'm feeling sad. And, and I know for me, I used to justify, well, why am I feeling sad? What do I have to feel sad about? I don't have anything to feel sad about. I should be happy. I should be grateful. And then poof, I would, you know, let that feeling go. And so I encourage people to acknowledge what they're feeling. And the reason I encourage people to do that first, because the second step is slowing down and getting into your body. And from what I had read, everything is, that's the top tip, slow down and get into your body. You know, we are all aware of that. But when you are spinning out in monger land, the very last thing you want to do is slow down and get into your body. You want to keep going. You got to keep moving. You know, if, if when someone, I will come downstairs being in full on work mode and super stressed. And my husband will say, Oh honey, you need to take a deep breath. And I want to punch him in the face. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, like, mm -hmm. like that is not what I want to do. And so acknowledging what you're feeling is a mental exercise. And so it kind of gives some space between the monger talking and, and what comes next. So after you've acknowledged what you're feeling, then you slow down and get into your body. And that is not sit there and take a deep breath, but a full body movement. Stand up, do a stretch, wiggle around, get recognize that you have a body because we spend so much time in our head that we forget that we actually are human beings that have a body and there's all these needs and all oh, my neck is actually hurting me or my back hurts and I've been hunched over this computer completely unaware of that. And so that starts shifting things. And then the last step is to kindly pull back and see a bigger picture. And that's because our mongers keep us in this, they keep us with blinders on. And so our monger has, there's a right way and a wrong way. You're a good person or you're a bad person. Everything is, is very literal, very black and white, very limited. And so she can start off your day by saying, you're a terrible person. Who do you think you are? You're never going to be able to do your work today. You can't do that meeting. You're, you're terrible. And we'll believe it. it. You know, we'll just be like, yeah, you're right. I'm terrible. Yep. Yep. We don't ever question it because it's such a familiar voice. And so when we can pull back and see a bigger picture, we can be like, wait a minute. I'm, I'm actually 47 years old. I'm not 16. I do know what I'm doing. I've had lots of training. I did this meeting yesterday. I'm pretty capable. And we can see a bigger picture of what's really going on. 
Mm-hmm. Wow, this is this is good stuff. And I mean, I like the way you break it down. And I loved how you said doing a full body movement, because I think and I, I wonder for people who are listening, I mean, a lot of our audience is therapists and, and uh, you know, but everybody right now, well, not everybody, but a large number of working professionals who were in workspaces where they were interacting with their colleagues and walking around the office, you know, in between sessions, if you're a therapist, you're having a minute to get up and go to the bathroom and get a drink of water and chat with a colleague and stretch and do whatever. Now we're just like sitting in front of these computers all day. I mean, I guess in some places, some therapists are back in the office, but most therapists I know are still in their house. And I am too. And for me, it feels a lot different during the day to do sessions back to back in front of the computer. Sometimes I'm like, I didn't move out of my chair like the whole day. I mean, maybe I got up for a second and ran to the bathroom or I took a lunch break and I moved around. But it's like you do forget you have a body. <laughs> it's like your max headroom, if you remember that from MTV back in like yes, the 80s. Yes. <laughs> like you're this head on the screen and that's it. <laughs> Yes, exactly. 99% of people who are listening is like, are saying, what is she talking about? (laughs) But that's okay. You knew what I meant. I totally know what you meant. Yep. So I like that idea of like a full body movement to shake things up. How does that help? What is it about that? I think it is, it's anything, it's, I always say anything that you can separate, put some distance between you and the monger because it becomes, she becomes one with us and we don't recognize she's a separate voice. She is outside of us. And so that full body movement just reminds me to do a check in with myself and be like, oh, wow. You know, I I do have all these these thoughts and feelings that are unrelated to her. She isn't everything. And I can get some distance there and then be able to take a deep breath and get into my body and figure out what's the bigger picture here. What's what's really happening in this world? Yeah. So I, I do think that that's one of the challenges of this is that and I don't know, maybe people have come further than I think. But I know when I had critical thoughts about myself I mean, I still do. But when I was younger, if I had critical thoughts about myself or if I felt anxious about something, it wasn't like I thought to myself, I feel anxious. It was this is happening. You know what I mean? Like, I can't go do that. It's too scary. Or, you know, I want to I just want to run away. Like, it, it wasn't like. I'm just having a thought right now that I'm scared, you know, or a feeling that I'm scared. You know, it was like, you you might be self-aware of what's going on inside your head, but you're not necessarily self-aware that what those thoughts and feelings are, aren't really what's happening. Do you know what I mean? I totally know what you mean. And so for a lot of people, it, a lot of my clients, it's wrecking, it's, there are behaviors, recognizing what are the behaviors I engage in when my monger is talking. And so recognizing, oh, I tend to numb out a lot when she's talking. I tend to constantly be thinking about food. I tend to be really irritable and I'll do a 10 reaction to a two situation. And and noticing your behaviors, or I tend to take on too much. And I'm always like, 
I'm like, yes, I got it. I got it. I got it. I got it when you don't have it. And so we can recognize the behavior before we can recognize that it's the monger is running the show. Is that answering what you're saying? Yeah, I think so. I think that's helpful because then you can sort of work backwards. If you see that you're doing that, then you can be like, what's driving this? Yeah, because the biggest problem is recognizing that it's the monger talking because we're so comfortable with her. Exactly. Because instead of realizing the monger is talking, you just think I am bad or I am a loser or a failure or terrible. Yeah. And, and, and even the concept of us, of recognizing when you say I should feel, I should be happy, I should be grateful. Like that is an exercise like to recognize when I notice that I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Or, or an uncommon one. I mean, a common one that is not talked about much is anytime you are engaging in a lot of drama in your mind or a lot of judgment of other people like, oh, you know, I hate so and so when they're there, I, you know, they make me feel like crap or whatever. That's usually means your BFF is talking a lot. So your inner critic has been talking a lot. And then and so then you have to have someone to blame for for what's happening. And so you jump to the BFF to say, well, it's Susie's fault. Susie's the reason this is so hard. And then I'm going to go into the, you know, I'm going to call a friend of mine and I'm going to talk about how Susie's so annoying and we're going to get all hopped up about Susie. But meanwhile, it was because the monger was yelling at me that I messed it up. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So for that one, and I can see how that's hard. Like, I think people, when they get caught up in drama, they don't necessarily know it. Right. Because they're feeling so much about what's happening and mm-hmm. and they it's harder to see an outside perspective. Do you have any guidance on how people can get more attuned to when that's happening? And for me, the chain that the how I got more attuned to that was recognizing how it felt in my body that when I was engaged in drama, I can remember. So I remember years ago to tell an example. Years ago, I found out we first got the, my dad's diagnosis that he had Parkinson's with dementia. Dementia. Yeah. I came home from that from that doctor's visit and I called my friend and I'm pacing around. I can still visualize it. I'm pacing around in the kitchen. I'm talking, you know, telling her the story of what's happening. We have an appropriate conversation. I hang up the phone. I am all awash in feelings and my monger's going crazy about what a terrible daughter I am and how I should be doing it differently. And I pick up the phone again and I start dialing someone else and I tell them the whole story. And then I hang up the phone and I have that same reaction. The anxiety is really high. So I pick up the phone and the energy in my body was just vibrating. It was so high. And anytime I would call someone, they would keep that drama going. They would be like, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. And we would just keep going and going with it. And and now I can recognize when that when that buzzing feeling is happening, that's usually a sign of drama. And that's usually a sign that I am not that I'm trying to quelch my anxiety in a way that's externally focused rather than slowing down to be like, whoa, what's how are you feeling about this? What's really going on here? And so it's an energy difference. And again, this is hard. This is back where I want to have the A, B, C, D, E mm-hmm. <laughs> ways of recognizing it, because to say, oh, it's an energy difference is like, what are you talking about, lady? Um <laughs> But it is, it's, it's a hopped up energy versus a grounded in my body, you know, and I can recognize that when I'm talking to a friend and we're talking about someone else, it's really hopped up and energizing and to be like, wait, that might be not what I want to be feeling right now. Maybe I need to, you know, to calm myself down a bit. Now you've brought up a point that really sparked my interest in a particular way, because I'm thinking about being like a teenage girl. 
and having, I mean, I would say most people realize that girl friendships involve a lot of, what do they call it? Oh, I forget the word, but it's like, you know, this like indirect type of communication where there's, you're being mean, but it's hidden, you know, like a passive aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. Passive aggressive, but there's a certain word I'm thinking of, but I can't remember. It's from like that book, Queen Bees and Wannabes. Mm. Um, But anyway, it's like, oh, I think they just call it relational aggression. (laughs) That's what I'm thinking of. (laughs) But in terms of like, it doesn't look like violence. It doesn't look like mm-hmm. bullying in terms of like what, what boys typically do, you know, the more physical aggression. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like excluding people and talking about people behind their back and plotting, you know, mean, mean ways to feel included by sticking together by excluding someone else and things like that. And, and I'm not saying that to pick on teenage girls, but I can remember as a teenage girl, the, physical excitement I would feel when I was connecting with a friend to talk negatively about another friend. And then, and it feels gross when I think back on it because it wasn't anything positive, but it was like a way of getting some kind of need of belonging met by doing something to hurt someone else. And you're feeling justified because that person had done something that I was hurt by as well. So you know what I mean? Yes. And like, I can remember that as a physical sensation. And it's not, it's not really good, but it was kind of exhilarating, exciting, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great word. Exhilarating is a great word for it. Yeah. So I think that, you know, thinking about that and what you're talking about, it's like that could be a clue. If you're feeling that in your body, it's a clue that this isn't. And I know for me now, like I don't want to feel good about saying something negative about someone else because I really want to live in a way where I give kindness to others and myself. Yeah, right. But it's like a way of fighting back in some way that isn't the other person doesn't even know you're doing it. So it's like you're not fighting back, but this disempowered way of fighting back, I guess. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I don't know. I guess I just that just made me think of that when you when you were talking about the difference in energy and knowing that you're not grounded like you. Mm -hmm. That's a clue that you're not feeling grounded. Yeah. Yeah. And it's even recognizing like, you know, sometimes if you grew up in a family where your where your conversation style is to talk about other people, you know, like even to recognize, oh, when I call when I call my, you know, like even now I have to work really hard when I call my mom, I know whatever I'm going to tell her, she's going to tell my brother. Mm hmm. And so I got to make sure I don't call my brother to talk about my mom in a negative way, you know, like to build that triangulation, because I'll do that. I'll get mom will say something. and I'll get really mad at her. And so I'll call my brother and then it's going to go back to her, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 so that's enough. But that is that I get that exhilarating. Like, can you believe mom did this? Pop, 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 pop to my brother. And to what end? That isn't I'm not dealing with what's really happening. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up because I've been thinking while we've been talking. And of course, this is always my bias anyway, because I'm a trauma therapist. But I was thinking about how I wonder if certainly in my experience with my clients who are super high achievers, who aren't very self of the of the clients I have this. I'm not saying it's everyone that they're not very self-aware and they do all these people pleasing and inner critic stuff behaviors. It's like 
it usually started with some dysfunctional family patterns of mm-hmm. communication and boundaries back way back when they were little or unmet, unmet attachment needs. Do you see that? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Definitely. There's a yeah, because it's it's con- you know, some of it you get if you get thrown into a different situation, you're constantly trying to figure out what are the rules here. And the rules have to be, you know, your the rules, you know, or the rules you grew up in your family. Mm-hmm. So you're trying to morph everything to fit into those rules. And, and, a lot, and when that doesn't happen, then the inner critic is just like going crazy because you aren't managing the rules. The other thing that is very common with people with high functioning anxiety is a, they oftentimes grew up in a household where they learned how to mind read to survive. You know, they mm-hmm. learn how to read the room and figure out what other people needed and to give it to them. And so there's a real lack of boundaries on where they end and the other person begins because they were taught, I'm here to take, I have to take care of everyone. I have to anticipate what's going to happen in order to protect myself. That is so true. That's like a classic dynamic of the family. We often hear about like where a parent was an alcoholic or had a substance abuse problem that the child just like they walk in the door from school and it's like, okay, what's the temperature of the household and what do I need Mm -hmm. to do? Which is, you know, a perfect recipe for becoming a super people pleaser because it's just in your body to sense in every environment. What do I need to do here to stay safe? And it's sometimes it's a it's a double edged sword in that the, in order to fine tune that skill of reading the room and anticipating, you have to be pretty sensitive to your environment. And then a lot of my clients got knocked down then and criticized for being too sensitive yep. and, and overly emotional when it's like, well, I couldn't have done all this stuff if I wasn't sensitive and overly emotional. But so I now I know emotions aren't appropriate. So I got to shut that down. And the only thing I can feel is happy. Well, this makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to say that I haven't had a chance to read your book yet, but I'm very eager to read it because I like I like the even though I know you said, you know, it might feel a little formulaic to you to have a three part system. But, you know, it can be really helpful to break down things into steps because these kinds of concepts and processes are so emotionally overwhelming to think about. Mm-hmm. So having those more concrete steps, I think, is probably very helpful to people. And I'm I'm really looking forward to reading more about what you had to say about this. Yeah, awesome. So Nancy, I know it's time for us to wrap up, but I wanted to just quickly ask you, since you do have this podcast, The Happier Approach, what will people find in your podcast? So it is a it's a lot of conversations around high functioning anxiety. It's a lot of how do you, you know, kind of diving deeper into some of the subjects we've talked about today and figuring out how to decrease people pleasing, how to figure out how to deal with your emotions and how to acknowledge what they are. And because so many people, myself included, as I said, have such a block around feelings, you know, I I just don't want to go there. And so I, a lot of my work in my podcast and in my writing is about, you know, kind of taking the the mystique out of feelings and making it more approachable. Well, it sounds wonderful. And I always think that podcasts are a great way for people to sort of get an introduction to a topic before they, you know, if they're not ready to commit to reading a book or going to therapy for this, it's a sometimes it's a like bite sized way for people to start exploring this. So I'm glad that absolutely. you have that going on too. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think it's a great way too to kind of just get 
you know, just to hear it as you, yeah, it, I don't have anything more to add. You said it all. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, Nancy, where can people find what you're doing, your book, your podcast, and working with you, all of those things? They can find me at my website, um, live-happier.com. Great website. Okay, <laughs> awesome. So live-happier.com. I'll put that in our show notes. And I just want to really thank you for being my guest on Therapy Chat today. This was such an interesting conversation. Thanks. I loved it. It was wonderful. Hey, everyone. Just wanted to take a minute to tell you about my trauma therapist consultation groups. These are small online groups for trauma therapists or therapists who are working with clients who have trauma and want to become more trauma-informed in the way they practice. The groups are limited to six people per group, and we meet one hour or one hour and a half per month, depending on which option you choose. And the group is for learning, improving your skills, connecting with additional resources for helping trauma survivors. And it's also for support and community because being a therapist can be very isolating and trauma work can be very isolating. So we come together and share our common experiences to help each other remember that we're all human and give and receive support. So if you're interested in learning more, you can sign up for the email list to find out when registration opens. It will be opening on February 1st. And if you want to be one of the first to find out about that when it goes live, join the email list. There is a link in the show notes for this episode to sign up for that. I'll also announce it here on the podcast when registration opens. Hope to see you there. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today.